mask in his earpiece is not a good combination. Um, good morning and happy Valentine's Day to Judith. Um, I can't remember if I said that this morning. Um, thank you, Richard, uh, for the introduction. We're continuing our series on book four of the Psalms. Um, and as Danny and Michael um, have already told us, the Psalms were the prayer book and the song book of Israel. The Psalms were sung together during feasts and religious ceremonies. They were memorized and prayed at home. They formed an important part of worship in the temple. They were central to the spiritual life of God's people. And this continues in the New Testament. No other book in the New, in, from the Old Testament is quoted or alluded to more than the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 110 became foundational for the way God's people understood who Jesus was. Jesus and his disciples sung psalms together in the upper room before Jesus was betrayed. When you listen to the prayers and praises of people in the New Testament, more often than not, you hear echoes of the psalms. The psalms are not primarily a record of God's words to his people. They are the words of God's people to God. They form a foundation of their spiritual lives, teaching the people of God how to pray, how to praise, and how to approach God. Some of you might have noticed that we've actually seen this already today. When Adam prayed at the start, he skillfully wove Psalm 103 through his prayer. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's exactly what the Psalms invite us to do. Um, so basically, I'm trying to get us to where Adam, Adam is. With all of that in mind, though, the Psalms can sometimes seem surprising. We know what to do with a psalm full of joy. We know what to do with Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But what about the frustrated cries of the conclusion of Psalm 44? Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Or how about the frankly depressing end of Psalm 88? O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And when Boney M. came to write their hit song, Rivers of Babylon, they based it on Psalm 137. But there's good reason they skipped the last couple of verses. In it, the psalmist calls for the graphic vengeance on the babies of his enemies. I don't know if you're like me, but... Often I feel into the, fall into the trap of feeling like I have to have myself in some sort of reasonable state before I approach God. This especially happens to me when I feel sinful. I sin, and then for a few days because of shame, I feel like I can't emotionally approach God. I don't feel anything towards God. It's probably a self-preservation thing. Then a few days later, I slowly start building up some sort of spiritual life again and begin to feel it's okay to emotionally connect with God. Deep down, I know that this makes no sense. As if time can erase sins, 
And as if, even when I feel good about myself, as if I'm actually any more fit than to approach God. I know it doesn't make sense, that it's anti-gospel, but it's often how I respond to shame. Another example, a friend of a friend once explained that he didn't want to attend church, he didn't want to read his Bible or pray unless he really felt it. He didn't feel it was right for him to approach God unless he knew his motives were pure, unless he thought that he really wanted to. Now, that can sound authentic, that sounds thoughtful, but what it really meant is that he hardly ever approached God in any way, and the result is that he is just clinging on to his faith. But the psalmists are not like me. They're not too ashamed to pray, or they're not like that man caught up in, in introspection and judgment of his motives. If the psalmist feels happy, they come to God. If they're frustrated, they come. If they're hurt, they come. If they're ashamed or devastated, they come. If they see no hope and only feel the words they have for God are words of accusation, they come and accuse him. When scholars separate the psalms out into their various categories, the most common psalm is an individual's lament, crying out to God for help in a hard circumstance. See, a beautiful thing about the psalms is they don't put on their Sunday best. The psalms don't feel like they have to get their act together. The psalmists don't feel they even have to get all their thoughts together before coming to God. The psalms are for real life, for real feelings. And in them we see a huge range of human emotion. And the Holy Spirit saw fit to include the frustrated psalms, the depressed, even the violently angry sentiments in the collection of poems designed to teach us how to pray. This should free us. The psalms are an invitation to come to God. We don't always have to come with the joy of Psalm 95 or the peace of Psalm 23. Psalm 44, 88, 137, and many others are just as legitimate as prayers to God. So David, unlike me, when he feels crushed by his own sinfulness, when he's disgusted with himself, he doesn't just hide away and trick himself into waiting until the sense of shame dies down. He writes Psalm 53. He comes straight to God. And this isn't just a millennial call for authenticity. Imagine a world in which there was an American president who was loved by all their people. It's a hard world to imagine. But imagine an ideal ruler, and then they send out a letter to all the churches in America. And the letter contains a collection of poems. The president writes, please find enclosed a collection of poetry that I've written over the years. There's a good one in there about a time I was really angry and depressed. Another is about a time I cheated on my wife and cried for forgiveness. Please read these in your church services. See, David is the ultimate authority in Israel. He's an absolute monarch. He will be remembered by Israel as a near ideal ruler. And yet somehow, a poem in which he cries out to the Lord after having committed adultery, after having raped a woman and murdered her husband, ends up in the prayer book, the songbook of the people of Israel. Other Psalms of David express anxiety, frustration, fear, loneliness, even depression. I don't know how all the Psalms were collated together, but I know that God wanted us to have them all. The Psalms take honest interaction with God seriously. They take our emotions seriously, showing God takes it seriously. 
Earlier, we read a little of Psalm 88, maybe the saddest psalm. There's no hope expressed in that psalm. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. But as one commentator wisely points out, the hope of Psalm 88 is that there is a Psalm 88. The psalmist has reached the deepest depths and sees no hope, but they still turn to God. He still expressed himself to God. And where there is prayer, there is always hope. The Psalms invite us to honesty. Where are we before God? Don't leave all your worries and feelings at the door and try to come to God as a blank slate with a forced smile. Come to God happy, frustrated, angry, devastated. Come to him in honesty. And if you don't know what to say, there's probably a psalm for it. God has given us prayers and songs that show us how to come to him. It's probably a, a golden rule in preaching. Don't use half your time on a really long introduction. Um, everyone gets a heart sink moment when they think you're only starting, but don't worry, I actually am halfway. Um, let's read Psalm 103. This is a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and then it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What do we do when we feel nothing for God? What do we do when we don't desire him? When we come to him and just feel numb? I become most aware of this in my own life, um, sometimes when Judith, my wife, catches me off guard by deciding to pray. Um, a situation will arise, or it'll be the end of the day, and she'll start praying. And I realize I'm numb. I don't feel anything. I can't emotionally enter into what she's praying, or how she's praising God. It happens in church services as well, in person, and definitely more on the screen. We'll be singing praises to God, 
maybe mouthing the words, but our hearts aren't in it. We close our eyes to pray, but feel nothing's there. What do we do when we feel nothing for God? There can be lots of reasons for it. Maybe it's when we feel sinful or distant or if we've been disappointed or hurt. Or sometimes we just grow a bit numb. We grow a bit bored. And the things that used to make our hearts sing now feel forced or fake. We might not be able to put our finger on exactly why we're like that, but we just don't feel the emotions towards God that we used to in praise. To be honest, I've had a few years like that. You go through the motions, you still believe, but you're numb, you're bored. So whether it's due to shame or disappointment or feeling hurt or just being numb, whatever the reason, what do we do when we feel nothing? When praise is no longer instinctive? What do we do when we read a beautiful psalm like the one we've just read? Can it still say anything to us? I'm convinced that the approach that David shows us in Psalm 103 is exactly what we need. And my hunch is that in this season we all find ourselves in at the moment, there's probably quite a few of us who are a bit numb, a bit cold towards the Lord. So what does David do when he doesn't feel like praising? The first thing we've already covered he still comes to the Lord. He comes in open admission of how he is. He seeks honest praise. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget his benefits. David begins and ends the psalm talking to his own soul to praise the Lord. Why? Because he wasn't full of praise. He didn't feel like blessing the Lord. He needed to talk to himself. This psalm is unusual, as in it, David's not primarily talking to God. It's not primarily a psalm of praise. It's David talking to himself. And soul in this context is talking about his whole being. As he says in verse 1, all that is within me. David is calling on all that is within him to praise God. Why? Because he's not in a posture of praise. He's not in that place. He's not bubbling over with love. He's in a season where songs don't come naturally. He's grown a bit cold. The first thing uh, to say about this is that it's really encouraging. The times when we feel distant from God emotionally, that's okay. There's space for those feelings in our worship. There's space for those feelings in the Psalms. Think of other Psalms. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? We don't have to pretend that the terrible song is true. I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. Since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed my heart from sin, I'm happy all the time. Wrong. I'm sorry if that ruins any childhood memories, but that sentiment is blatantly false if you think of real life. And it's comforting to find that it's blatantly false in the Psalms as well. The Lord understands us. Look at verse 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We are weak. There will be times when we feel cold, distant. David did as well. But he didn't stay there. He didn't allow it to stop him coming to God. And he shows us his plan to walk the road back to praise. He starts in honest admission of where he is, and he comes to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit 
and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. As David starts talking to himself, he reminds his soul of God's blessing. He tells himself not to forget. He remembers the healing, the forgiveness, the good he has enjoyed from God. The religious life of Israel was built to safeguard against forgetfulness. Their calendar followed a cycle of remembering what the Lord had done for them. Celebration was compulsory. This is because we are forgetful people. We so quickly forget answered prayers and blessings from God. David has to remind himself, every time you were healed or got through sickness, that was the goodness of God. Every time you were forgiven, that was the goodness of God. Every time you enjoy a good thing, that was kindness from God. Um, my sister-in-law, Ashley, um, who many of you will know, she's American. Um, and one of the few advantages of being American is being able to celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, and this year, when we were chatting to them on Zoom, I, I was very impressed at how they celebrated Thanksgiving. Throughout the year, Ashley kept a list of all the answered prayers they had prayed throughout the year. Small, insignificant, everyday requests to big, dramatic answers of pr to prayer, like my dad now being cancer-free, despite a time when it looked like things weren't going to be that way. She kept a list all throughout the year, and then on Thanksgiving, they decorated the whole room, wall-to-wall, -wall, full of answered prayers, and they had their dinner there. I thought that was such a healthy practice, taking time to remember and to celebrate the goodness of God to them. Because we are forgetful people, we forget the goodness of God in, his life, in our lives. So when David doesn't feel an emotional connection to God, the first thing he does is he reminds his soul of what God has done for him. Maybe we've grown a bit cold towards God, and maybe it's because we too easily forget. We don't acknowledge his blessings in our lives. And maybe we need to develop rhythms and habits of thanks and celebration, especially in times like these. This is one of the reasons why we are so blessed meeting every week for communion. This is a weekly ritual of remembrance. We remember Jesus. We don't let ourselves forget the, bless the greatest blessing in our lives. This was definitely true this morning as we enjoyed remembering Jesus' character, his meekness, his love. This is definitely harder to do on a screen, and I'm really guilty of not seriously engaging with the breaking of bread over lockdown but we too easily forget, and we need things like that to remind us of God's goodness. David then turns from his own personal blessings to the bigger picture. Verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Any Israelite who heard those words, their minds would instantly go back to the Exodus story, when God showed his mighty acts and saved his people. The Exodus narrative was the central story of salvation for the people of Israel, how God heard them when they cried as oppressed slaves and sent his mighty power to save them and lead them from bondage, to found them as a nation and to bring them into covenant with him. By directing his heart to the story of Israel, when to the story which is Israel's soul as the central event of God's salvation, David reminds himself of the very character of God. 
What a person says can show you a bit of who they are, but it's what a person does, how they live their lives, that gives the clearest window into their character. David preaches to his heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget that he is the God who rescued the people of Israel from slavery when they cried to him. That is who he is. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful, steady love. He is the God who does not treat us in the way we deserve because of our sin. Rather, his love for us is as high as the skies above the earth. And he exiles our sins as far as east is from west. He shows compassion on us like a father does. He loves us the way a father loves his children. The Israelite hearing this psalm would not miss where David's getting his language. All throughout the psalm, David has weaved the words of Exodus 34. This is when the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Moses pleads with the Lord to show him his glory. And the Lord says, come up the mountain tomorrow and I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. Moses comes up the mountain. God puts him in a cleft of rock to protect him and then uh, proclaims himself in Exodus 34, verse 5. As we read this, listen for Psalm 103. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you were to ask an Israelite, how does God describe himself? they would have pointed you to these verses. As David reminds his heart of all that God has done, he lifts and repeats phrases from God's own self-revelation of his character. As David describes the way God acts, he's reminded that it's exactly as God said it would be. The character of God is consistent. He acts in the way he said he would. His actions prove his words. And his character is proven as one of steadfast love Mercy, merciful and gracious, forgiving and kind, like a father's love for his children. So what does David do when he doesn't feel like praising or praying? Firstly, he owns up to it. He's honest. He doesn't let his numb heart stop him from coming to God. Instead, he speaks to his heart. He reminds his forgetful soul. He reminds himself of all the blessings the Lord has given him. He remembers all the good things he has enjoyed are from the hand of the Lord. Then he lifts his eyes to the bigger picture, the picture of God's work in the world and reminds himself of God's rescue of the people of Israel. This brings his heart to the Lord's self-revelation of his very character. David reminds himself of the compassionate father whose heart is full of mercy and forgiveness and steadfast everlasting love for his children. David's remembrance then crescendos in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He has directed the eyes of his heart to the highest of heights, the image of the Lord, a gracious, loving father, ruling all things from a throne that cannot be shaken. And where does that leave David? He began the psalm not wanting to praise, talking to himself, persuading himself into praise. And as he has reminded himself of these things, he now cannot help but break into worship, calling all the Lord's subjects to join him in song. 
Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So where does that leave us? How do we learn from David? Um, An Old Testament scholar, David Golden Gay, writes this. The Psalms are scripture for us to make into our prayers. When we read the Psalms, we are accepting an invitation to overhear the psalmist praying, to listen to their prayers, to listen to what is going on between them and God. We are being invited to see if we can make their prayers our own and to test our prayers by theirs. We're not being invited to learn something about prayer. We are being invited to pray. He encourages re-praying of the Psalms, using them as model prayers to teach us how to pray. He points out that both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament taught prayer this way, by giving us model prayers to make our own. We can even see what Psalm 103 used this way. Mary in Luke 1, as she comes to praise the Lord after Gabriel has announced the birth of Jesus, she sings her song and she weaves throughout it echoes of Psalm 103, other Psalms, and Hannah's song from the Old Testament, all woven together and made her own. So this is how we will really learn from Psalm 103, by praying it. We can do this as a community and as, indiv- and as individuals, but most of the work you can only do for yourself. I would encourage you, if you're able, to do it today. Open your Bible to Psalm 103 and use it for a foundation of your own prayer. Write it out. Follow David's flow, but add your own words. Talk to your own soul. Use Adam as an example of this. Then keep that prayer as a prayer to pray when you don't feel like praying, a prayer to pray when you're numb. But it's important to remember that our prayers will sound a bit different from David's. When we remind ourselves of God's forgiveness or his acts in history or the establishment of his kingdom, our prayers and our songs cannot help but repeat the name Jesus. Looking back from this side of the resurrection, we see Jesus all throughout Psalm 103. When we direct our hearts to the central work of salvation, our eyes don't linger on the Exodus story, but go to the cross. The world cried out to God, as the Israelites did, in bondage to sin and death, and the Lord heard and sent his Son. He has made known to us his ways, his mercy and grace, his steadfast love, the beautiful forgiveness through the life, death, resurrection, and enthronement of his Son, our Lord Jesus. We no longer look to Exodus 34 to see God's character revealed. We look to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, his perfect representation. In Jesus, we see both the climatic work of God and his very character. He knows our frame. He became a man. He remembers we are dust. He became dust. He knows our weaknesses. He was tempted in all the ways that we are. He knows us, and his love for us is all the stronger for it. We have a compassionate Father in heaven, and through Jesus, our brother, we can say with David that his love for us is from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord has set Christ on his throne, and established his kingdom, and we await his coming again in power. Then we can say with David that he will heal all diseases, 
He will exile forever all sinfulness and evil. He will right all wrongs. He will call our bodies back from the pit to new life. Christ will reign over all. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The Psalms are our model prayers. They're for real life. They're honest, and they don't require us to fix ourselves before coming to God. Psalm 103 is there for the numb, when we don't feel like praising God. David invites us to talk to ourselves, to remind our hearts of God's blessings, his blessing in our own lives, his works of salvation, his story and history in the wider world that has climaxed in Christ. When you feel praised is forced, talk to yourself. Remind your heart of these things. Preach them to yourself. This is our path back to praise. Take this psalm and make it your own.